If there is one mineral you should be worried about not getting enough of, then it's magnesium. Magnesium is the body's master mineral that covers over 300 critical reactions including detoxification, fat metabolism, energy, even digestion. Unfortunately, there are two big problems. Magnesium has been largely missing from the US soil since the 1950s, which explains why it's estimated that up to 80% of the population may be deficient. And most supplements contain only one or two forms of magnesium, when in reality there are at least seven that your body needs and benefits from. That's why I'm excited to tell you about the new magnesium that I've been taking, called Magnesium Breakthrough. It's the ultimate magnesium supplement, easily the best I've seen with all seven forms of this mineral. Magnesium Breakthrough has been selling faster than any other BioOptimizers product, and it's already sold out a few times. With volume discounts combined with our custom 10% coupon code SEAM10, you can save up to 40% of select packages of Magnesium Breakthrough. That's amazing! So head over to magbreakthrough.com forward slash SEAM. You won't find this deal on Amazon or any other website. This deal is exclusive for the listeners of this podcast and is legitimately for a limited time while supplies last. Go to magbreakthrough.com slash seam and use the coupon code seam10 to save up to 40% of select packages to get the most full spectrum and effective magnesium product ever. If the cortisol is high because of stress, um, then it will slow its body. The thyroid down is honestly is a protective. It's the cell danger response is what it's called. And so it will slow the thyroid down is, is a protective ability it'll slow down the ability to make the active hormone t3 and it can actually even increase the inactive form which is reverse t3 and so when women and men have thyroid issues i always go to the hpa axis and vice versa if they have hpa axis issues i'm always double checking their thyroid just to make sure that you know the best friends aren't talking to each other and affecting each other while trying to address the cause do you want to know what it is body mind empowerment get stronger faster smarter quicker friendlier more helpful more driven everything the body needs control your mind welcome to the body mind empowerment podcast i'm your host simuland and our guest today is dr carrie jones dr carrie is a naturopathic physician with a master's in public health with over 12 years of experience she's an expert in hormones and hormonal health for both men and women Dr. Carey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, uh, I'm also glad to talk with you. And uh, before we get into some of the science, maybe can you give us uh, some background of how did you become a doctor and uh, what do you do nowadays? Yeah, I am a naturopathic doctor. So I was planning to become a conventional traditional doctor until I realized that I wanted to take a more holistic um, natural integrative type route and that's where I found naturopathic medicine and then I loved doing work internationally so I got my master's in public health and now I am the medical director for a hormone testing company called Precision Analytical and they're the creators of the Dutch test so I am all hormones all the time. <laughs> yeah that's, yeah that's a really fascinating way of going about it and uh, they do say that hormones cause a lot of issues and uh, a lot of the times it's going to make people gain weight or go through some sort of depression etc so <laughs> it's um i would imagine that being like a doctor specializing in hormones is um it's a very let's say multifaceted world <laughs> or it's, it's constantly changing there's never like this black and white answer and uh, everything is a uh, like a context dependent 
That's a hundred percent. I say that working with hormones is like trying to herd cats sometimes because they can really be all over the place. And especially with women, it depends month to month. And so, uh, but it's a lot of fun. I really like doing it. <laughs> yeah. So what is uh, the Dutch test? It's um, like you said, it's a pro is it one of the like most uh, renowned hormone tests out there at the moment? It is, especially in the functional medicine world. It's a um, acronym. It stands for dried urine test for comprehensive hormones. So it is a easy to collect at home test where you just urinate on little pieces of paper uh, throughout the day and let them dry, mail them back to the lab. And because it's in urine, we can give you all your hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, DHEAS, cortisol, what have you. But then we can give you extra information like where does your testosterone go and where does your estrogen go and what is your melatonin doing? And so we just get all this extra comprehensiveness to help when people feel hormonal or just don't feel well in general. Mm -hmm. And um, what, what can people use it for? Like um, if they have like any particular health issue, like is the Dutch test useful for any particular uh, condition? Yeah, it's actually, we use it a lot with men and women. Um, it's often assumed that women have all the hormonal problems, but they don't. Men do too. So we hear a lot of like, I'm really tired. I can't sleep. I can't get pregnant. Uh, I have really bad PMS. I feel depressed. I feel anxious. I can't lose weight. I can't gain muscle. Um, I can't lose this belly. I have brain fog. I have hot flashes and night sweats. I have thyroid problems. So you can see there's, there's a lot that goes into the stress and the sex hormones as it relates to the rest of the body. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, maybe let's start off uh, unraveling some of those problems. Like, um, um, like you, you mentioned, uh, women tend to suffer from some uh, hormonal problems sometimes. Uh, so what are some of the major, major uh, problems women suffer from? Yeah, and it depends on their age. So the, the younger women who are still cycling, who still have a period, they tend to experience the stress, the, the PMS, the PCOS, the you know polycystic ovary, the endometriosis, um, fertility problems, hair loss, skin issues. That's what the uh, sort of younger women tend to report. Now, as women are going through menopause, then it, then it changes a little bit. Now they're reporting more weight gain, uh, maybe more hair loss, uh, there are hot flashes and night sweats. They're not cycling like they used to. Their cycles are very irregular or, of course, have stopped altogether. Brain fog, cardiovascular disease is, is happening. And so it's a little different depending on if they're menopausal or if they're still cycling. But what's great about the test is that you can use it for really any age range from the teenager all the way up to a woman who is in menopause and struggling mm -hmm. right um and uh, like what are some of the causes then that causes these um imbalances honestly it's a lot of lifestyle <laughs> mm -hmm. it's it's all the things that you talk about it's all the things that you know we we know to do it's it's diet it's sleep it's stress it's how we take care of ourselves. it's the chemicals that we are exposed to it's it's the people and the relationships in our life, and that will all have a direct impact on how our hormones are made or not made. Um, is a really good example when you have a lot of stress and fear or um, 
uh, you know, just a, just a lot going on in your life, like right now, um, mm -hmm. a lot of women will experience hormone problems. They'll say that their cycle is irregular. They'll say their PMS is worse. They'll say their periods are heavy. They'll say they didn't ovulate this month. And stress has such a big effect on the brain. And the brain is trying to protect her reproduction, trying to protect her ovaries, trying to protect her from potentially becoming pregnant in a time when it's not healthy or safe. And so stress has this big impact on the way a woman makes estrogen or progesterone, just like chemicals. You know, for women who are exposed to a lot of uh, environmental chemicals or skincare chemicals or house cleaning chemicals, those chemicals can act like estrogen and turn estrogen receptors on. And now she says, I don't understand. I feel like I've gained weight. I feel like my, my periods are heavy. I have clots. I feel like my endometriosis is worse. I, my, my moods are bad. My PMS is bad. And it, it's more just that environmental exposure on the estrogen receptors is opposed to what the actual body is making. Mm. And so it can be so many things, which is why it's important to really, you know, talk to a woman and get her history and find out what's going on and then to test and, and really try to pinpoint, is it cortisol? Is it estradiol? Is it progesterone? Is it testosterone? Like what, in, in what pathway are they taking? Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. And uh, like stress is one of the biggest, like, uh, let's say down regulators of hormone hormonal production and uh, that applies to men as well like uh, cortisol and testosterone are, are almost like in a seesaw so if the mm -hmm. cortisol is high then testosterone is low and uh, vice versa so uh, like especially during these times yeah like i said it's it will be it will be pretty common for people to experience like these uh fatigue and uh, that sort of thing because they're you know in this fearful state and uh, they're stressed out yeah, and men especially, because men, I have a, a good friend of mine who's a men's health expert, Dr. Ralph Esposito, and he always talks about this with men. He says norepinephrine and epinephrine, so that, that you know, adrenaline, your, your fight or flight system. He said it's the number one killer of testosterone and it's the number of one killer of erections. And so I'm actually getting that feedback from some men who say, I used to not have a problem. I never had a problem before and now I'm having problems. What's going on? I'll say, well, we are in a pandemic, like, how is your stress? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and they're like, oh gosh, it's really high. It's 10 out of 10. I said, yeah, the, again, the body, the brain is trying to protect you. And so um, it's focusing yeah. on what's what important. And unfortunately, it's not important to the to, to survival. <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, from an evolutionary perspective, it's the, the, the body is just telling you that it's not the time to uh, procreate and get children. So it's exactly down, down, it makes sense from from that sense and down regulates the fertility in a way and but which which is unfortunate because you know most people don't realize that don't know that or they're like i'm not trying to get pregnant i don't want to be pregnant like i know <laughs> but you're right it's evolutionary it's the body's really trying to protect you from the outside threats yeah uh you mentioned uh estrogen and uh, progesterone so how do they affect uh hormones so progesterone is made in women only after they ovulate. So once they release an egg, that's when progesterone comes out. And progesterone is the calming, soothing, relaxing, everything's going to be okay hormone for women. Whereas estrogen is very important. We need it as women. Um, it gets vilified a lot or are told that estrogen is bad. But really estrogen is what helps with our brain and our bone and our skin and our heart 
And it's really important to help us to, to um, get ready for our cycle and to, in, uh, to, to write, it increases right before ovulation. So it's very important for ovulation. Mm-hmm. Now, what's, what's the problem is, is that they work sort of in a nice um, orchestrated symphony throughout the cycle. And if, if the estrogen is out of balance compared to the progesterone as she gets closer to her period, then she's more what we call estrogen dominant. And when you're estrogen dominant, you can then be more risk for the mood swings and PMS and, you know, breast tenderness and worse endometriosis and maybe acne, water retention. And so it's all those symptoms that women definitely don't want. And so by having a little too much estrogen or a lot too much estrogen and not enough progesterone, then when it's out of balance, um, women really feel it and they report it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a somewhat of a misconception that, uh, especially for like men, like estrogen is supposed to be, or it's associated to be, to be the uh, female hormone, and uh, that therefore men think that they need to kind of suppress their estrogen to zero and to have no estrogen, whereas that's going to cause like these uh, some problems, especially like uh, bone density and the frailty that can cause that can be the result of low estrogen all the time. So yeah. you don't want to suppress it too much. Yep, it's true. It's true. And, and I agree with you. I think men, again, are, are, they think, oh, if I have too much estrogen, I'll have a belly, and I'll, you know, I'll have I'll, I'll develop breasts, but it's, you could, but on the, if you suppress it way too much, just like you said, you're actually at risk, big risk. You have to be careful with estrogen in men. Yeah, definitely. And uh, you mentioned some of the things that uh, read estrogen, uh, like these chemicals and plastics and those things um have you have you like found a way to kind of circumvent uh the the exposure to these things uh, or um are are you taking any other like uh precautionary measurements against them definitely reading labels trying to get educated you know i'm really um trying to encourage men and women you know to know what they're putting on their body with with their their, their lotion their skincare their shampoo their conditioner using filters for their water, using filter for their, their shower filter, um, if they can. Um, all of those things, you know, what they, what they use in their garden for weeds, what they use around their house to clean, what they use in their hobbies, um, you know, whether you're an artist or you fix cars or you, you know, do things that require chemicals, just be very, very mindful of that. And if you do get exposed or if you, you know, you're doing the best you can to minimize it, um, I, I do a lot of sauna, right? I'm trying to use that heat to encourage detoxification and work with getting the chemicals out and using just healthy general liver support, glutathione, N-acetylcysteine, artichoke, milk thistle, just things that I know are generally going to help improve my liver handle any of these chemicals that I maybe come in contact with. Now with estrogen in particular, Estrogen, of course, like, like all chemicals, but estrogen also goes through detoxification. And that one, which is really great on the Dutch test, because I can see of the three phases of detoxification, I can see phase one and, and phase two. So if women are really concerned about how their estrogen detoxes through their body, I can tell them which direction it's headed in phase one and how well their phase two is doing. Phase three is actually done through stool testing. So uh, poop in a cup for science, which we don't do, but we can refer for other labs. And so it's great to know as a woman, especially and a man too, how can we optimize phase one? How can we optimize phase two? What can we do for phase three to just continually have their estrogen 
mm-hmm. out in a healthy manner as opposed to maybe increase cancer risk. Yeah. What are like um, other any reference ranges uh, that are normal or something that's considered high? With the estrogen detox? Uh, like estrogen in general as well. Yeah. So with, uh, with women, so men are different, of course, because they don't cycle, but with women, we have multiple reference ranges. So we have a menopausal reference range. We have kind of an in-between gray area range between menopause and the cycling woman. And then in a cycling woman, a woman who gets her, who, you know, gets her period, we have a range for that as well. Um, and especially you, the range in the first part of her cycle, which is called the follicular phase is different than the range in the second part of her cycle, which is called the luteal phase. And so this sounds like a lot of reference ranges, and it really is for women. So this is why when you test, no matter how you test a woman, you need to know where she is in her cycle because the same thing applies to progesterone. I have multiple ranges for progesterone depending on where she is in her cycle. So ideally for women, we encourage them to collect after ovulation. So if you ovulate, as an example, to make it easy on day 14, then we suggest collecting your hormone test five to seven days later. So before your period, but after ovulation, that's kind of the sweet spot. Hmm. And at that point, we should see, we, we're looking at the estrogen progesterone uh, kind of balance. Right. And uh, would the, the time of the day affect the results like the yeah yes yeah you know it's so funny i get that question a lot where people will say you know i got my blood drawn at three in the afternoon but then i did your test i did the dutch test and the results are different like well that's interesting because research actually shows that when you when you release hormones they get released in pulses they're not they're not a straight line all the time they go up and down as a pulse and so if you collected at a low time when the pulse wasn't happening, then your progesterone is going to look lower. If you collect it at a high time, then your progesterone will look higher. Usually estrogen and progesterone are higher more towards the morning time. It, that your hormones are on a circadian rhythm to an extent, not, not like cortisol, but to a, to a degree. So I encourage women to either, if you get a blood draw, to maybe go more towards the morning. Or if you're doing a Dutch test, you're in luck. We actually collect four times in the day and we do a weighted average of all four times. So I can tell you your weighted average of progesterone or estradiol production or testosterone or whatever Mm -hmm. through the day. And then that's sort of the average, which is great because um, it's not just a single point. Right. Right. Yeah. It's definitely like the uh, cortisol also is is like very variable or changes throughout the day mm-hmm. and that's will indefinitely affect like testosterone results and other hormones so yeah it's sometimes yeah people may freak out about their test results and uh the but yeah but it's just caused by the taking the taking a test at a particular time of the day right actually i got a message right before we started talking i got a message from a woman on social media who said my doctor tested my progesterone on day 16, but I have a long cycle. I have a 45-day cycle. And her progesterone on day 16 was really low. And I said, well, it's supposed, it would be low. That's, that's normal, unfortunately, to be low yeah. for you on day 16 because you have such a long cycle. Unfortunately, what your doctor uh, should have done was waited and try to see when you ovulate and then test after that. So your low progesterone result is actually normal for you on your long cycle day and or long having a long cycle. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with men, right? Men will go and get their testosterone drawn at four in the afternoon, 4 PM. And then they can't, you know, they freak out that it's not ideal. Like, well, it's 
4 p.m. is not not prime time for testosterone. <laughs> what is what is the top prime time for that then? Morning, morning. So as uh, as you know, testosterone is made in the sleep um, at night, and so testosterone is reaches its peak somewhere between, depending on what time you get up in the morning, reaches its peak somewhere between like five and eight a.m. So when I have a man get his testosterone drawn through the blood, I advise him to go to the lab as early, somewhere between like eight, eight and ten a.m. Um, and if the lab opens up sooner, then that'd be great. Go sooner, but uh, most a lot of labs don't. So earlier the better. Don't wait till the afternoon. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, what are what are for the men uh, or women as well, like the normal uh, testosterone ranges? So with testosterone with women, it's actually different than estrogen and progesterones. Um, but testosterone, there are there are age ranges that uh, a, we, a lot of labs will give. But what I find is that age range and optimal range are not always the same range. So there's testosterone doesn't necessarily change with the cycle. So it doesn't go low with a period, but up at ovulation per se. Um, but uh, we tend to see testosterone go down as a woman goes through menopause. So it gets lower and lower. And the reason for that is uh, a large percentage, roughly 25% of testosterone is made in a woman's ovary. And so when she goes through menopause and she loses the ability of the ovarian function, she loses out on that big percentage of testosterone um, and therefore her, her levels go down. It's, it's not fair or fun at all for women, mm-hmm. um, but we do keep that age, uh, rate, the menopause versus sort of, younger age in mind when we're looking at testosterone. Whereas men, of course, men definitely have age ranges for testosterone, but it's sort of the same idea in in that age range and optimal range are not the same range. And as we know, testosterone levels have been falling significantly over time. The testosterone level of a man maybe who's 50 years old today compared to the level of a 50-year-old man um, 20 years ago are much different. The man 20 years ago would have a much higher testosterone level, and that would be considered normal. Um, and now, unfortunately, it's just it's due to a, very, a variety of factors, it's dropped way down. Hmm. So I will have men who say, I have normal testosterone in my test result, but I, I feel terrible. I'm like, I know. <laughs> you, we, uh, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, your, age, your, your range is adjusting with the times um, and that's why you feel bad. You'd probably feel better with more testosterone. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, yeah. Like, uh, people are so used to functioning suboptimally and, uh, their, the reference ranges also kind of compensate for this sort of a decline in a population's health. And therefore they, in the example of testosterone, then they have to lower the normal reference range just because, uh, most people don't have because most people are experiencing this decline in testosterone and uh, it's kind of reflects the average of the population but it's not not it's not like uh, optimal and like you said most people feel like crap even when they are within within the normal range yeah yeah which is really it's it's unfair and it's unfortunate and 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 so many people get told well you're normal you you're that you're fine you're you're right in the range and so, or they get the result back and they see that they're in the range and they don't realize that just because they're in the range for the age range doesn't mean they're in, a, in an optimal range. Yeah, definitely. So what, what, are, what are some of the reasons maybe why the testosterone has been declining? You know, studies have shown, believe it or not, that it's not necessarily age. It's definitely much more environmental exposures and that the chemicals um, 
that we are exposed to, especially men, men's testicles are so fragile and so um, uh, um, at risk when they come into any kind of chemical exposure that it affects the cells called Leydig cells that make testosterone. And so with men, um, when you compound that with other things such as thyroid problems and stress and alcohol and marijuana and medication use and maybe other hormones that suppress testosterone such as prolactin, it just adds up over time and it's led to a progressive suppression of men's testosterone. And so really working with men and I, and even like heavy metals, I forgot to mention heavy metals. Um, just again, the, tes- the, the, the testicles and the Leydig cells are just so um, sensitive. You know, they're just really, they're not well protected really <laughs> when yeah. it comes to chemicals. And so they get really affected and that can, or even other hormones and, and that can just really affect a man's output of testosterone. Yeah, yeah, it's quite funny. Like men are supposed to be these uh, tough guys <laughs> and uh, <laughs> resilient, but uh, their hormones are even, even, even as fragile as as women's. Yeah, yeah, no, it's definitely true. It's definitely, and we see it more and more. You know, especially with now that is more and more men are 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 trying to get healthier and you know learn about their health and and improve their outcomes and get into functional medicine. Um, they just really see like, wow, stress really affects me. And wow, what I, what I eat is really affecting me. And wow, the chemicals are really affecting me. And wow, I can't stay up until three in the morning anymore and expect to get up and be at work by eight. Like I just, that I completely miss out on obviously sleep, but uh, testosterone production, which is made in the night. And so it's, it's true. Like men need to take it as seriously as women. Yeah. Uh, how does the body create these hormones in the first place? Uh, like, uh, is there a, Is there like Magic. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's at the direction of the brain, believe it or not. A lot of people forget. Um, so with women, are, are most of all of our um, most all of our estrogen uh, is made in the ovaries, and then as is our progesterone. Uh, and with men, t- testosterone are made, of course, in the testicles. And so what happens is the brain sends pulses. The hypothalamus sends pulses to the pituitary, and that sends pulses down for example, to the ovaries, and there's different pulses. There's a pulse for estrogen called FSH, and there's a pulse for progesterone called LH. And so they ha- they do their thing, that you know, depending on where you are on your cycle and what's triggering what, it's like a domino effect, well choreographed, and um, that's what releases estrogen and progesterone. Cortisol, mm-hmm. of course, is made in the adrenal glands for both men and women. Again, same thing, it's, it's the pulses come out of the brain, but cortisol um, is really, really, really light, dark dependent. There's uh, the genes, of course, that dictate our circadian rhythm are known as the clock genes, appropriately named. And so, but their light, um, full spectrum light is what entrains them, entrains the pulses and entrains how our circadian rhythm works. Whereas dark, darkness, complete darkness resets a dysfunctional circadian rhythm. So if you have a dysfunctional circadian rhythm, making sure you sleep in complete darkness or wear a sleep mask, cover up all lights, go to bed, you know, like be, make sure to dim lights at night, wear blue light blocking glasses, those kind of things can be really helpful for re- resetting of, or, um, your cortisol output, your, your circadian rhythm. Whereas getting light first thing in the morning on waking, open your blinds, open your curtains, go outside, purchase a, a full spectrum light box um, or a full spectrum mm-hmm. light alarm entrains the brain. So it reminds the brain like, okay, we, ma- we get up now and we make cortisol now. And it's called the cortisol awakening response. 
And it's so fascinating because it's very quick. It happens in 30 minutes. So when people tell me they like to lay in bed and play on their phone, I'm like, no, 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 no. (laughs) Get up, open your curtains (laughs) and get some sunlight in or go outside and sit outside for a couple minutes and play on your phone. You need that bright light uh, to help. Yeah. Yeah. The circadian rhythms are like hugely influential, influential in uh, regulating the hormones. And uh, a lot of the times Mm -hmm. when people feel that they're tired or they're like fatigued, then it's it's uh, more often not caused by this sort of a misalignment in the circadian rhythms. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the sleep is critical, but the sunlight in the morning is uh, quite like the most most critical part for offsetting the proper circadian rhythm for the rest of the day. So you're kind of aligning your hormonal machinery to function more optimally and synchronized. Yeah. And not even just hormones like we traditionally think, because we've been talking about estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, yeah. but even glucose, insulin, leptin, you know, all those, those blood sugar metabolic syndrome type markers, cardiovascular markers, those are all, they all follow somewhat of a rhythm as well. And they all respond to the clock genes coming out of the brain, the master circadian rhythm. And so you could have complete blood sugar issues because your circadian rhythm is off. You could have, you know, menstrual cycle problems because your circadian rhythm is off. I mean, it just, they, it all ties together. They all, they all talk to each other on a regular basis. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so when it comes to testing cortisol, uh, is there a particular time of the day and uh, what's the refer- reference ranges? With cortisol, because of the circadian rhythm, you want to test multiple times a day. A lot of people will just go get their blood drawn for cortisol. But when you get a blood draw for cortisol, your result uh, that you get is a combination of free cortisol. Free cortisol is what's active. It's what can bind to receptors and turn them on. It, it does the things. And, and, then, and then bound up cortisol. Um, cortisol, that's, um, hormones are like children. They can't be really unattended at any time, right? So the body's smart and the body puts your hormones on buses called binding globulins. And so when you draw your cortisol, let's say, the, let's pretend the result is 10. What you don't know is if that's nine bound up inactive cortisol and one free cortisol or nine free cortisol and one bound up cortisol. So it's not very helpful. So then enter in, you can do saliva testing or you can do dried urine testing where you collect a sample usually four or five times during the day. So you'll do it in the morning, you'll do it like a couple hours later around dinner before bed. And then if you have insomnia, you'll do it when you wake up in the middle of the night. And what's great about that is it's easy. You can do it at home. There's no blood draw. And then you get the big picture of your circadian rhythm. What do you look like in the morning? What do you look like a couple hours later? Why are you tired in the afternoon? Or maybe the opposite. Why do you have anxiety in the afternoon? Why can't you sleep at night? Um, and so we can look at your grand cortisol pattern and, and really help. And so your morning cortisol should be at its highest. And we're looking at reference ranges. It looks like a mountain. So it goes up to a peak and then it gradually slides down the slope the rest of the day. So you want your, your morning cortisol to be higher than your afternoon or, or bedtime cortisol because uh, you want your mountain to start, you know, pretty high to get to get yourself out of bed and get you alert and get you going and handle inflammation and infection and blood sugar. Cortisol is really important for all of those things. And then we want it low at night so you can fall asleep. Yeah. Yeah. What, what if someone uh, has the like um, inverse or the opposite that they're, <laughs> they're rising in the evening and uh, tired or low in the morning? Yeah. So I call that the uh, either the parent or the entrepreneur <laughs> um, uh, pattern because what happens is entrepreneurs and parents, you know, they get that second wind at night. So parents, especially they'll put their kids to bed and then that's the time where they can 
do stuff. They can get on the computer, they can clean the house, they can do laundry, they can pay bills, they can talk to each other, what have you. And entrepreneurs are the same. Entrepreneurs eat dinner and then they may relax for a little bit and then they're like, oh gosh, I have to do this and this and this. And they pull their computer out or they're on their phone and they're, you know, getting ready for the day or the week or they're responding to everything they didn't have time to. And all of a sudden it's 11, 12, one in the morning and they're thinking, oh, I need to go to bed now, but they've just been really active. And so we, now they try to go to bed and it's some, they have a tough time. And so when they wake up in the morning or try to, they're tired and they're groggy, (laughs) their cortisol is low because they have sort of shifted or messed up their circadian rhythm. And so what we, it's a lot of education, right? It's just, it's doing what you said. It's a lot of like using the light in the morning first thing. And it's a lot of reminding people, you know, to try to minimize what you do at night before bed, try to give yourself a wind down routine an hour or two before you go to bed with cutting out electronics or cutting out blue light and, you know, not watching scary things on Netflix (laughs) and not drinking a lot, right? Not eating a lot of sugar. Try try not to be stimulatory before bed. Don't play video games that involve a lot of, you know, gunfighting and, and excitatory right. stuff. Cause that can be a problem. And, uh, and then now you can't sleep. Yeah, definitely. Like the blue light itself, uh, does raise cortisol because it's resembles the daylight. And, uh, that's kind of signals the brain that it's not, not time to fall asleep. And, uh, that therefore you won't, uh, or like you're going to reduce the sleep quality as well as the time mm-hmm. that, that it takes you to fall asleep so it's definitely like a very yeah. under under undervalued and it will affect your melatonin production as well and of course we know melatonin is our um comes out at night right uh, cortisol is like the sun melatonin is like the like the moon it comes out mm-hmm. at night and melatonin is a big antioxidant and you know it's it's a hormone itself and so if you are up late at night and you are exposed to a lot of blue light from screens, TV, phone, what have you, then the body goes, oh, well, the pineal gland says, well, I, apparently it's daylight, so I'm not going to make melatonin and it will not make as much as it should and for a lot of people. Yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, but what, what about melatonin? Do you do you test melatonin and uh, yes. what kind of interpretations? Yeah. So melatonin on the Dutch test in particular, the melatonin is collected through the night. And so uh, with testing melatonin, it's hard because melatonin peaks, you know, in the night. <laughs> so nobody yeah. wants to get up and get a blood draw or, you know, to do a test in the middle of the night. So what's great about the urine test is that you make melatonin all night long um, and then it gets put into or run through the kidneys and put into the bladder. And so on the Dutch test, the melatonin is actually collected off the first morning sample because that reflects your melatonin that's been held in the bladder all night long, which is great. And so with melatonin, it is true though that melatonin, most of it's made in the gut, right? Most, most of your melatonin is made there, but um, a small percent, percentage is made in the pineal gland. So melatonin results are a combination of what's made in the gut and what's, what's made in the pineal gland. But mm. either way, we know it's, it's really important for, um, to, for lots of stuff like sleep, yeah. rhythm, you know, antioxidant, fertility, sperm production, things like that. So um, we like melatonin. We want it to be healthy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's uh, really central to uh, a lot of the other uh, like longevity processes mm-hmm. like reg- regulates uh, sirtuins and uh, like autophagy and those things. So yeah, pretty important. Yeah. And actually there's some foods that are helpful like dark, um, yeah, cherries and uh, pistachios actually contain high amounts of melatonin. So 
mm-hmm. you can even kind of fake it with yeah. some of your healthy foods <laughs> yeah i i actually like um i saw this study where um the like if you know the the time of the day also affects how how much a particular food has uh, it's melatonin for example like uh, if you like milk has melatonin and uh, if you milk the cows in the evening then it's going to have more melatonin because the cows would naturally be starting to produce melatonin whereas if you take them or if you milk the cows in the daytime then it's going to have less melatonin and uh, the vice versa like if a mother breast or gives the child uh, breast milk in the evening then uh, fr- then it's also going to have like higher melatonin whereas if they you know use uh, the or if they gather the milk during the daytime and then give the child the milk in the evening then it's going to have less melatonin and that's that's therefore going to affect the child's uh, sleep patterns as well in a way and the the the, the women would may wonder like why their child isn't able to fall asleep because uh, they're giving their child uh, milk that has less melatonin whereas if they were to do it naturally the, or directly in the evening then uh, they w- w- would have uh, more melatonin that is so cool you know i never thought about that before but that makes perfect sense yeah yeah it's, it's quite crazy yeah uh but uh w- then would like for example blocking out blue light would it also affect the test results of, it of will it, in a positive manner, yes, because the um, melanopsin in your retina are what register the blue-green light wave uh, wavelength. And so by using either blocking out the blue light on your screen, uh, using an app or changing your colors, using the blue light blocking glasses, then could be helpful to reduce cortisol and allow natural cort- uh, mel- excuse me, melatonin, allow natural melatonin to come out at an appropriate time at night. I've read some studies that says melatonin comes out, it starts to rise, I should say, it starts to rise one to two hours prior to your natural bedtime. Mm-hmm. On average, for the average person who goes to bed, you know, around 10 to 11 p.m. The, at night, then your melatonin would come out somewhere in the like eight to nine p.m. point. So if you're looking to improve your melatonin, if circadian rhythm is a problem, then by about eight o'clock, you either need to have your blue light blocking things in effect or just get off screens altogether and, uh, you know, have less bright light on in your house. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, what about like a thyroid? That's a pretty common problem. Uh, I hear people talking about as well that people have low thyroid and uh, therefore it's going to slow down their metabolism. So uh, how does, let's say, for example, cortisol affect the thyroid and uh, maybe sleep as well? Yeah, and it actually goes back and forth. So when you have low thyroid, um, when the thyroid slows down, it slows everything down. So hair turnover and GI, so you get constipation and, you know, so you get dry skin and, and you, you know, gain weight and what have you. And so um, it also will slow down the metabolism of cortisol. And so when you're testing uh, like on the Dutch test, when you're looking at metabolized cortisol, it will be low because the thyroid is slowing it down. It's slowing the ability to metabolize cortisol out of the body. And vice versa, when you have adrenal issues, when you have um, you know, a lot of stress and a lot of cortisol, that higher cortisol will also impact the way that you make thyroid. It will slow it down. Mm-hmm. And, so it's, and, and I joke to people that the thyroid and the adrenal glands are, are kind of best friends. And so if one is slow, 
then the other one slows down too. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, it's and, and then if the if the cortisol is high because of stress, um, then it will slow its body. The thyroid down is honestly is a protective. It's the cell danger response is what it's called, and so it will slow the thyroid down. is is a protective ability. It'll slow down the ability to make the active hormone T3, and it can actually even increase the inactive form, which is reverse T3. And so when women and men have thyroid issues, I always go to the HPA axis and vice versa. If they have HPA axis issues, I'm always double checking their thyroid just to make sure that, you know, the best friends aren't talking to each other and affecting each other while trying to address the cause. Yeah. Yeah. What are the ranges, reference ranges for thyroid hormones? Well, so it depends what country you're in <laughs> and it depends what you're testing. So for example, TSH in America, um, you can, depending where you, what lab you're using, the upper range can be four, four to five. Uh, so four, 4.55, depending what lab you're using. Functionally though, a lot of functional practitioners want TSH to be between one and two ish, maybe one to, to 2.5. So there's a lot of debate because people will go get their their TSH, their thyroid stimulating hormone drawn, and maybe it comes back 3.99 or 4.2. And they're, you know, the doctor's like, well, you're totally in the reference range and that's fine. But yet they have a lot of symptoms. And so they may not be full-blown hypothyroid, of course, but they may definitely start to have thyroid symptoms because the thyroid is starting to be affected. Now the TSH might be normal, but they may have a lot of conversion issues. So they're, you're looking at your you know, free T4 and your free T3 as examples. And then when you're looking there, most of the conversion is done in the periphery. It's done out in the cells outside of the thyroid. And so uh, now this is why people have a lot of systemic symptoms because they systemically can't convert the T4 into the T3, which is the more active hormone. And so again, the ranges sort of depend on where you are in the world but what i just remind people is that the just because the range for thyroid is tricky it's usually a lot tighter than it functionally than it is so if for example six or eight is the cutoff it's like maybe depending what country you're in you want it to be lower or maybe you want it to be you know on the up closer to the upper end it kind of just depends again ranges on what you're looking for mm -hmm. and so that's the tricky thing about thyroid that really confuses people um, who are not in medicine because they say, well, I have this result and my doctor said I'm normal. I'm like, well, <laughs> kind of, <Yeah. laughs> you don't feel normal and you have all the symptoms and you're not optimal. Let's say that. So yes, you're in the normal range. No, you're not optimal. Yeah, definitely. So in addition to stress and cortisol, like what are some other things that uh, uh, lower thyroid functioning? Um, what other things that will lower uh, thyroid function, uh, hormones, you being, uh, heavy on estrogen can affect thyroid hormones, stress, um, like inflammation, illness, infection, chemicals, chemicals can absolutely affect the way that your body makes uh, thyroid hormone or activates thyroid hormone. There are a lot of, um, a lot of things that get in the way of the thyroid. So it's very, it's sort of like the same list that we're repeating over and over. Um, it, it affects just you may learn it as it is affecting one hormone, but it's actually just know that it's probably affecting all of the hormones. So if you have exposure to chemicals, like let's say you use Roundup or glyphosate, like it's probably going to affect all the hormones. If you, you heat everything in plastic containers and you, you use plastic 
you know, cling wrap over your food and then microwave it every day and you drink out of plastic water bottles, just know that the plastic is going to affect all of the hormones, um, all of them. And so it's just, you, we can't just single out, unfortunately, one hormone to make it easy, but it's definitely, that's why it's a system, right? Like the whole system talks to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And uh, yeah, it's uh, again, like, like it requires to un- look at the entire lifestyle and see what mm-hmm. are some of the major uh, problems that the person might be facing. Right. It's, I get this question, like cortisol is a really good example. People will say, um, my patient can't sleep. They can't, they can't fall asleep at night. What pill should I give them? <laughs> and I'll say, well, what, why can't they sleep at night? And they're like, well, their cortisol is high on the test. So what can I give them to suppress cortisol? I go, okay, well, why is their cortisol high? Is it because they're in pain? Is it because they're stressed out? Is it a blood sugar thing because they just, you know, had a lot of dessert? and alcohol? Is it because they're, you know, up working? What, because I would treat those differently. If they're in a lot of pain at night, if they, if their back pain flares at night, then I'm not maybe necessarily going to suppress cortisol. I'm going to affect the back pain first, right? And then work with the cortisol. If it's sugar, if I know that every night they're having, you know, a lot of dessert and in sweet drinks, sugary drinks, and it's affecting their cortisol, then I'm not going to just rush to suppress their cortisol. I'm going to rush to affect their lifestyle. And same goes for computer work or stress work or, you know, if they're, if they're working at night um, and getting upset and they're getting stressed out and anxious and angry and what have you, they're in a, in a zone or in a mood, then we have to work on that first before I can just run to suppress the cortisol. And so just taking a pill, it's not that simple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, uh, like uh i've also i've also noticed that uh, a lot of the times uh, low thyroid functioning tends to raise co- co- cholesterol uh because like there's not enough thyroid hormones to clear out the cholesterol and that, that can be somewhat problematic so hypothyroidism like is l- the lower metabolic rate essentially also leads to a higher cholesterol uh, level in the blood yeah, which I, my understanding is, um, you know, forever ago, years ago, before they knew how to, before they had the technology to test thyroid hormone, if they saw high cholesterol, they assumed it was due to low thyroid and gave thyroid. I think if I remember that correctly, mm-hmm. that high cholesterol used to be, I mean, this is many, many years ago, the indicator for a low functioning thyroid. And so, and now, of course, if somebody has high cholesterol, then what, you know, we jump like, Oh, conventionally, like put them on a statin medication. They have to have a statin medication. It's like, well, hold on. <laughs> Let's find out why they have high cholesterol. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, uh, cholesterol itself is also like a steroid hormone and, uh, it's actually needed for some of the creation of the hormones, uh, such as testosterone. All of them, all the steroid hormones, cholesterol is the backbone. So, um, which is important when it comes to creation because there's a protein called the star protein and the star protein binds to cholesterol. And then in the mitochondria of the cell, that's where the whole process starts. So not only is cholesterol health important, but mitochondrial health is important to hormone creation. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, and then some of the hormones are made in the endoplasmic reticulum and released out into circulation. So they go through, they start in the mitochondria and then finish in the endoplasmic reticulum. And other hormones, such as cortisol, start in the mitochondria 
partly go into the endoplasmic reticulum and then finish up in the mitochondria. So the mitochondria are doubly important for cortisol health, but no matter what, cholesterol is still the backbone. It is still the absolute first step. And so when people say, uh, I'm going to, like, can't I just give pregnenolone the supplement and increase somebody's progesterone or increase somebody's cortisol? I said, it doesn't work that way. The steroid pathway starts with cholesterol. Pregnenolone is helpful. It's just not helpful in the way that you think. It's, it's effective at the brain level, but it doesn't actually insert itself into the mitochondria and, and then magically turn into the, the rest of the hormones. Like we right. still need, you still need that star protein to bind to cholesterol is, is the rate limiting first step. Mm. So like uh, too low cholesterol is definitely problematic in terms of uh, hormones. Yeah. And we see this. I see this a lot in men. Um, when I did a lot of practice, I would have men who would be, their, their heart doctor would put them on high doses of statins, statin medication to lower their cholesterol. And then they, their hormones would tank, their testosterone would tank, everything would tank, and they couldn't understand why they felt so terrible. And I would have to call many a cardiovascular doctor to say, hey, is there any chance we can, <laughs> you can reduce their statin or we can find something else because you have now dropped their testosterone significantly and it's affecting everything about them. And thankfully, at least, you know, the ones I were working with, a lot of them were like, oh yeah, we can, we can cut the dose in half or we can look at something else or, especially because I would test testosterone, you know, I'd send it to them and say, look, we need cholesterol as the backbone and you're really affecting their testosterone and testosterone is so important for yeah. men. So let's fix this. Yeah. And, uh, especially like if the, if the low cholesterol is going to contribute to some sort of a hormonal imbalance, like a low testosterone, then that in turn can also, uh, raise your cardiovascular risk. And it's, it's like a backwards, backwards uh, type yeah. of thinking that, uh, you're lowering the cholesterol, you know, in hopes of uh, lowering the risk of cardiovascular disease. But uh, the lower cholesterol will also lower your testosterone, which in turn raises your risk of cardiovascular disease. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> so it's uh, quite, quite yeah. stupid. Uh, yeah, I agree. What are, what are some other uh, nutrients needed for um, hormonal health? So with, um, with well, I, honestly, I do a lot of mitochondrial support. So I'm looking a lot at like alpha lipoic acid and CoQ10 and, you know, B vitamins and PQQ. And then I'm looking at supportive things such as sulforaphane and glutathione and N-acetylcysteine. Uh, when it comes to cortisol, I'm looking at uh, specifically B vitamins, but B5, pantothenic acid. I'm looking at vitamin C, which of course is so important right now. And there's, so there's a, there definitely nutrients go a lot into just the supportive nature of helping, either helping the hormone get made in a sense, or at least helping the environment that it's being made in, such as the mitochondria. And so, um, you know, that's what it goes back to like lifestyle. When you asked me in the very beginning, like what's, what, what do I, what am I looking at first or what's the cause mm -hmm. of hormone imbalance? Yeah. Lifestyle is, can be huge because if those chemicals are affecting your mitochondria and they're becoming sick or they're dying or your, your, your lack of proper nutrients or your inability to absorb them in your, in your gut and in your intestines is resulting in hormone imbalance. Um, then we have we have to start there. That's the, those are the building blocks. Yeah, definitely. And the food is also like a one of the most easiest way of uh, affecting uh, your uh, your hormones. 
Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Even, um, for example, something like disordered eating. So those who have a, a current or past anorexic history, when the body is really underweight, there's a hormone called leptin that is released from the fat cells. Now, leptin is often associated with having too much weight, so having obesity. And um, there's something called leptin resistance, which is similar to insulin resistance in a sense. But on the flip side, what women don't realize, if you are very underweight, then you don't make a lot of leptin. You don't have the fat cells to release the leptin to the hypothalamus in your brain. And that leptin is in part what tells the brain that it's, you're, you're of a healthy enough weight to have a period, to, to basically to reproduce, going back mm -hmm. to evolution. And so for women who maybe over-exercise, over-train, um, under-eat, and they say, you know, I don't, I don't have a period or my cycle is very irregular, a lot of it hinges on that, that hormone leptin because the brain is waiting for the signal that it's all safe. It's all safe to, to, to start the cycle over again. And mm -hmm. uh, when it's not there, it doesn't do it. It's, it just, it's, it's protective. And so yeah. weight, um, what you eat, diet, how you eat, how you train um, has an effect whether it's under or over. It doesn't Overtrain, overeat, under or the opposite, right? Undertrain, <laughs> overeat. Like you, it's it has the it has an effect on the hormones. Right. Do you have like any uh, like allegiances or you know some 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 recommendations in terms of the macronutrient ratios? Like, uh, do you recommend more of a like a low carb or a higher carb approach? Which one? Which one do you prefer? I do not have an allegiance, interestingly <laughs> enough. I get asked this a lot if I have it. I don't. No, because uh, I just find that it's so different uh, from person to person. So, for example, I was asked yesterday, what's, uh, what's, one, of the, what's one of the like things I've tried that was an epic failure in the terms of functional medicine? For me personally, it was the ketogenic diet. I, I, am, I have no problem with the ketogenic diet if people want to do it. For me personally, though, I've done it twice, and both times I was – a horrifically mean person. <laughs> it completely changes my mood. I'm, I'm, I'm terrible. And so that's not worth it to me that the, the right. ketogenic diet is not worth, you know, losing friends, family, job, marriage. So <laughs> yeah. to other people, it's life changing to other people. The ketogenic diet changed everything. They, they lost weight. Their autoimmune got so much better. Their symptoms got so much better. Their mental clarity went through the roof. Like just, they just glow because of the ketogenic diet. And so I, I don't adhere, I don't have an allegiance to a particular mm. one because I yeah. definitely sort of see all across the board. And it depends on someone's, um, you know, I guess makeup and it depends on how they handle. Uh, so I'm loving looking at the continuous glucose monitors now so I can actually show people like you think you can do carbs, but you can't look at your glucose <laughs> or, you know, you think you can eat, you know, all this sugar all day or even fruit by itself and, and you can't or other people I'm like oh actually you handled that really well you're you're the, the numbers don't lie look at you good job and so if you have some sort of trackable wearable device that you can get this feedback uh, that's ultimately the the best thing I think yeah definitely like I, I totally agree that the nutrition has to be like tailored to the individual and uh, the, the particular situation and uh, like a Low carb diet may not be, uh, or like a high carb diet, especially wouldn't be optimal for someone who has like insulin resistance and mm -hmm. uh, another, yeah, like different 
like different people do worse on a keto diet as well because uh the there's too too little carbs because the carbs mm-hmm. are important for uh, leptin especially as well as the, the thyroid hormones so if you're mm-hmm. you know constantly low carb all the time then you may see a drop in uh, thyroid uh, functioning especially and i'm seeing with um keto in particular not to, I'm, i don't mean to pick on keto but with women i'll see um uh, like dietitians and coaches and nutritionists talk about keto cycling. So not being on keto all the time, because with women, you know, it, it can be helpful to, to ease off of it or to add more carbs in, depending on where you are in your cycle, adding more um, complex carbohydrates and root vegetables and things like that. And I really like that idea versus being all keto all the time. Um, for a woman, like maybe me is a great example where it's made me mean, um, but maybe if I had done cycling, we're adding in more carbs at different parts of my cycle that would have actually helped alleviate some of my symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, so which it just, again, goes back to being personalized and tailored because there's other women who say, well, I do keto all the time, 24 seven, and I feel great. I'm like, fantastic. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. That wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's, yeah, it's a, it's interesting to uh, realize that, uh, you are like a individual and, uh, it's uh, different for everyone and therefore you shouldn't try to replicate someone else's that you have to kind of find out uh, which which one works best for you and what do you need at a particular moment uh, in your like stage of life or what, what whatever it may be right and it's the same for people who do time restricted feeding right intermittent fasting or mm-hmm. true prolonged fasting um like for example i try to generally adhere i generally fast somewhere between 12 and 16 hours depending on my day but i tell people the truth i'm like if i wake up hungry like hungry i'll eat because it's definitely not worth it to have me hungry (laughs) and then i'll just break my fast and sometimes it'll be at the eight hour depending when i went to bed or 10 hour and i just i'm just not going to hit that 12 14 16 hour mark and it's totally fine because that's what i needed that day for whatever reason and then other days i hit the 16 hour mark and i'm still not hungry other days i'm like oh I need, you know, I need to start feeding at my refeed. This, this is a good time, but I'm, I'm not there. I don't feel it. Right. I don't feel yeah. the hunger. And so it's, I know it's a challenge for people who are new and who are listening saying, well, I'm, I'm just starting this journey. And what, what do I do? I'm like, well, you just start, you just pick something and start <laughs> because yeah. it's like you and me, like we've been doing this right for a while. And, and so it's, it's easier when there's changes to be made or uh, if I have to divert or if I want to give something up or add something in, cause I've just been doing practicing it myself for so long. So for people who are new, I'm like, you just start somewhere. Yeah. There's no wrong answer because you're just, your body will give you the feedback and you will just learn to listen and get better at it over time. Yeah. And, uh, you shouldn't be like distraught or scared of the idea that you have to have like the right answer immediately because mm-hmm. because uh it, the truth is that uh, the right answer is going to change as well so uh mm-hmm. the best the best scenario is to just start and uh, start experimenting and uh because the answer itself is also changing all the time so you're never, you're never gonna get the 100 percent exact answer that you can do for the rest of your life yep that is such a good point absolutely i hear that a lot in women as they get older as they go from not menopausal to menopausal. I have a lot of women who say to me, I can't drink alcohol anymore. It makes me feel bad. It makes me get hot flashes. It puts on weight. I can't sleep when I drink alcohol. Whereas before, maybe they figured it out. Maybe they figured out they could do, if they wanted to drink, they could drink, you know, whatever, Mm -hmm. red wine or tequila or something, you know, like sort of low sugar, low carb, 
every once in a while and then they, and then they can't at all. Um, and the same goes for diet. I have a lot of women who transition into menopause who say, I used to be able to eat more carbs. And now that I'm into menopause, I feel m more insulin resistance. I feel my blood sugar is more sensitive and I, I need more protein and I need more fat and fiber and less carbohydrates. And I said, yep, absolutely. The loss of the estrogen and loss of progesterone is affecting your insulin and glucose and in how you process uh, sugar and carbohydrates. It's definitely changing. So I love what you said because even if something is just normal body transitions, aging for women going into menopause, you may have thought your diet was dialed in and perfect, perfect in your 30s. And then you hit your 40s and 50s and it's not so perfect anymore. And it's not like you're doing anything wrong. It's just your physiology is changing. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so where can people learn more about uh, maybe interested in taking the Dutch tests uh, or, or contact Cortex to you? Yeah, so the website is the easiest. Uh, it's easy. It's www.dutchtest.com. Everything on there is uh, all the webinars, all the education, um, all the podcast recordings such as this one are up there for free for everyone to learn, to watch, to listen. Uh, and then on Instagram, I hang out the most on Instagram, and my Instagram handle is at dr.carryjones. Uh, so it's at dr.carryjones. Nice. We're going to put all the links in the show notes. And uh, my last question is, uh, what's this one piece of advice or habit you wish you had adopted sooner? <laughs> um, I have celiac, and I don't eat gluten, and I wish I had known... A lot, 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 lot younger <laughs> that I should have stopped gluten. <laughs> I think that would have made it for a much easier, you know, teenage and 20s part of my life um, by, by giving that up. So, yeah. yeah. So that's for me, me, right? Again, it's individualized. That's me personally. That's what I wish I would have known sooner. And I guess for just a general no sooner, I wish I would have known the light, dark um, impact on the clock genes, on the circadian rhythm. I always knew, I, you know, I always knew it, but when you get into the research and you really, really read how ridiculously important light and dark are to the human body um, and how simple it is, it's not hard, it's not, clearly it's not expensive. Uh, we just go with the natural light dark. It makes a world of difference. And since I've started doing that over the last probably year or two, really using light in the morning, sleeping with a sleep mask at night, turning all the light, making sure even the little weird lights, select whatever lights around my room are off or covered up. Um, it's made a really big difference in my sleep pattern. So I try to adhere to that as well. Mm. Yeah, definitely. It's like, it's good advice, especially the gluten part. So you have to kind of, uh, you, you, you had to identify like your personal like mm -hmm. uh, needs and uh, requirements. So your life would be easier. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. From a younger age, it would have been. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks for coming to the podcast and uh, yeah, happy to have you back on the future for another topic and yeah, uh, have a nice day. Wonderful. I would love it. Thank you.